Our passage this morning is 2 Peter chapter 1. So I'll ask you to take a copy of the scriptures and find 2 Peter chapter 1. We're nearing the end of the year and we're nearing it quickly, which means we're nearing the end of our 2022 Bible reading plan. I hope that uh, you have stuck with us this year and you've read through the New Testament five chapters a week. If you're tracking along and you've made it this far into the year, I would just give you a word of encouragement to say the next couple of weeks are going to be busy, Thanksgiving, traveling, Christmas, lots of stuff happening. Uh, Finish strong. Stick with your reading plan. Make it through the year and begin thinking about next year. What will your plan be for reading the scripture next year? Maybe read the Bible in a year, read the New Testament again, read a particular book, uh, but come up with some sort of plan of action as you think about reading the scriptures next year. This morning, our passage is 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and verse 4, and I want to begin with just a few preliminary comments about 1 Peter and 2 Peter, and then we'll drill down on this particular passage. This may seem obvious to you, but I think it's worth saying out loud, 2 Peter is connected to 1 Peter. Those two things, those two books, the concepts, the ideas... They all go together, and this is clear when you look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Peter says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you. So he's written a first letter, we call that 1 Peter. Now he's writing a second letter, we call that 2 Peter. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, who he is writing to. He talks about all of these different Roman provinces. He mentions Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. All of these places that he's writing these letters to. And you can literally just find them on a map of the first century Roman Empire. He sends off this letter, 1 Peter, then 2 Peter, to all of these provinces. When Peter writes the letter, he's in Rome and he's in prison. When he writes 1 Peter, it's probably the early 60s, 62, 63. When he writes 2 Peter, he's been in prison for a number of years, and it's probably more like 67, 68. Nero is the emperor of Rome, and Peter is coming to the end of Peter's life, and Nero, little does he know, is also coming to the end of his life. And Peter writes to this group of churches in what we would call Turkey. And he's writing them a second letter. And the themes in 1 Peter are the same themes that you find in 2 Peter. There's two dominant themes that make up 1 and 2 Peter. One is the glory of salvation. And the second is the certainty of suffering. The glory of salvation and the certainty of suffering. When you read 1st and 2nd Peter, you will find some of the most beautiful, moving descriptions of God's grace and God's work to save sinners that you will find anywhere in the Bible. Peter talks about salvation in beautiful language, which we like. He also talks about suffering, which as human beings, and particularly as Americans, we don't like. But just like Peter talks about the glory of salvation, he prepares us for the certainty of suffering. 
He's not trying to be a downer. He's not trying to be a pessimist. He's not trying to be negative. He's trying to prepare us for what will certainly come our way. The glory of salvation and the certainty of salvation, or the certainty, excuse me, of suffering. Now, if you were here Wednesday, we talked about the suffering part. We looked at 1 Peter chapter 5. We talked about how we can suffer well and what that looks like in our lives. This morning, our focus will be the glory of salvation. And the big idea of our passage is really simple. It's a short passage. It's a simple big idea. God has given His people everything they need for life and godliness. God has given you, if you are a Christian, everything that you need for life and for godliness. So that's the big idea. Let's read these two verses and then let's pray. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That's the Word of God. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we're thankful for the Bible. We're thankful for a year of reading the New Testament together. We thank you for the letters of First and Second Peter. And as we think about the words that Peter wrote here at the end of his life, uh, we pray that you would give us eyes to see the truth. Lord, help us to see the glory of our salvation, not just in what lies ahead in the future, but in what you have provided for us now in the present. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This last week, I thought about the board game Balderdash. Have you ever played this board game, Balderdash? There's two ways to win at Balderdash. Number one, you can be a walking dictionary, a walking encyclopedia, and you can know the definition to lots of obscure words. Or number two, you can be a good liar and a good bluffer, and you can convince the other people playing the game that you know the definition of obscure words. So the game is really simple. You are presented with a word. You've probably never heard of the word. Words like these words. Scrivolo, Prager, Oikomania, Snotter, Slargando, Atluk, Finocchio, Yapuk, Yevil, Zitzit, Nerdle, Jollop, Kakerlak, which I particularly like, and Musnud. So you're given a word and you say, I don't I've never heard of that word. I've never used that word in a sentence. I don't know what that word means. And you are tasked with writing down the definition of that word. So either you know it or you make one up. And then you go around to the people who are playing and everyone reads their definition out loud. And then everyone votes on the definition. Now the way that this goes is sometimes you end up voting for the definition you think is correct Sometimes you just end up voting for the definition that you like or you think is funny, but everyone votes, and if you can get people to vote for your definition, you advance in the game. Now, I was at Walmart this last week, and they had Monopoly on the end cap. And you know how they make lots of different varieties of Monopoly? Like there's Monopoly, and then there's Charlie Brown Monopoly, and then there's NFL football monopoly. They even had at Walmart Odessa monopoly, buying Odessa. 
Odessa Monopoly. So all sorts of varieties of Monopoly. I think there's a small niche market available for Balderdash to make a board game for pastors, theologians, and Bible nerds. And we'll call it Balderdash and we'll put Calvin and Luther and Billy Graham on the cover. And rather than words like Cackerlack, we'll use words like these. Adiaphora, Monophysite, Tetragrammaton, Compatibilism, Infralapsarian, Perichoresis, Theodicy, Anthropomorphism, Modalism, Noetic, Panentheism, Hypostatic, Teleological, Presuppositional. And we'll throw these theological terms out and then we can see what sort of definition people come up with. I've taught just enough Bible college seminary classes to know that sometimes when you're grading the papers of your students, you feel like you're playing balderdash with these terms. And you read somebody's paper and you say, nope, that is not what that word means. That is incorrect, but it's a good guess. And I want to give you some points for creativity and effort. I don't want you to think about any of these words. Let me give you a simpler word, a theological term. And I want you to think about what initially comes to your mind in terms of a definition. The word is salvation. I want you to think about the word salvation. And I want you to think about how you would define that as a Christian. How would you define it biblically if you were asked to put a a definition down on paper? My guess is that we would come up with things like this. Maybe eternal life. God gives a person salvation. He gives them eternal life. Maybe we would think about heaven. Salvation is something that we will fully and finally receive when we go to heaven someday. Maybe we would talk about the forgiveness of our sins. And the fact that because our sins are forgiven, we do not have to suffer eternal punishment apart from the presence of God, the blessing of God, and suffer that punishment in a place the Bible calls hell. All of those answers would be true, and they would be good answers, and they would be biblical answers. And all of those answers look forward. And there is a sense in which salvation is about the future. It's about what God will do for His people in the future. If you were here last Sunday, Jake, Grave, Jake Graves preached about this. His passage was 1 Peter chapter 1. And if you look at verse 3, Peter says in 1 Peter 1 that there is a, a group of people who according to God's great mercy have been born again to a living hope. What is that living hope? Well, verse 4 says it's an inheritance not in this life. Remember Jake said our inheritance is not in this life, in this world. It's an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Look at verse 5. Not only is God keeping your inheritance, but He is guarding you. He's keeping you through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's looking forward to God saving His people in the end. Not that today we have this inheritance, but that God is keeping it for us in heaven and in the future, on the last day, this salvation will be fully revealed. That's the futureness of our salvation, and it's the emphasis of 1 Peter 1. But we're in 2 Peter 1. And the emphasis in 2 Peter 1 isn't on the futureness of salvation, it's on the nowness of salvation. 
the presentness of salvation, the already here parts of salvation. And what Peter says to us in 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4 is that God has given His people everything that they need for life. He's not talking about heaven in the future. He's talked about that in a previous letter, 1 Peter. He's talking about life right now today, your life, your life tomorrow when the alarm goes off, your life this week and whatever is in store for you. God has given you everything you need for life now and for godliness now. Not just godliness when you die and go to heaven someday, but for godliness and Christ-likeness today, now. Our focus is going to be on this now aspect of salvation. Jake talked about the future aspect last week. This morning we're thinking about this now present aspect of our salvation. Now I want to tell you what God has given to you. He's given you everything you need. I want to tell you what He's given you. But first I want you to understand how sure it is and how certain it is and the guarantee that Peter sees for why you have everything that you need for life and godliness. And it's the first couple of words in verse 3, His divine power. The reason you have everything that you need for life and godliness as a Christian is a result of the fact that God is powerful. The theological term that we would use is omnipotent. That's the reason we have everything that we need. It's because God is omnipotent. Omni, it's the Latin root for all. Potent is the Latin word for power. When we say that God is omnipotent, omnipotent, we're saying that He is all-powerful. He can do anything. And no one can stop Him from doing what He sets out to do. Now, this may sound like a Bible truth that belongs in the nursery. Maybe you think these little kids over here, they need to learn about God and His power. We let them come dance during the music, then we send them out. They go have a snack, they play on the playground, they review their Bible lesson. Hopefully, we're teaching these kids that God is powerful. That is certainly a basic Bible truth that any person ought to know. It's very elementary, but it's something that we tend to forget. And I want to remind you this morning what the Bible actually says about God and His power. God and His power. Several verses I would draw your attention to. Deuteronomy chapter 3. This is at the very end of Moses' life. He says, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. If you were here with us Wednesday night, we talked about 1 Peter 5, and Peter says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, under God's power, under His authority, under His sovereignty. It's the same image. You've only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand, for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? And the obvious answer is none. There is no God on the earth or in heaven or anywhere in between who can do what Yahweh did in bringing a people out of slavery in Egypt. No other God has that kind of power. 
Look at Job 42, verse 2. Job said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. This is the end of Job. Job has finally come face to face with the Lord. All his complaints have been silenced. He's confessing his sin and he simply says, God, you can do everything. No one can stop your plans. That's how powerful you are. Look what Jeremiah says, the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah was told by God to do something very counterintuitive. It did not make sense to Jeremiah. His brain couldn't compute what was going on. He didn't understand. But to his credit, he stopped and he prayed. And this is one of the things that he prayed. It is you, God, who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. God tells him to do something that doesn't make sense. He's wrestling with that decision. One of the things he reminds him of is God can do everything. His power is great. No one can hold back the power of his right arm. Look what we read in the Gospels. Matthew chapter 19. Jesus has just told the disciples that it is impossible for anyone to be saved. He said it's like a camel passing through the eye of a needle. And they say, well, how is anyone ever going to be saved? And Jesus says, with man it is impossible. Salvation is not possible for human beings to do on their own. It's like the camel going through the eye of the needle. It's not going to happen. But with God, the proverbial camel can pass through the eye of a needle and a sinner can be saved. Not by what you can do or what your pastor can do, by, by the power of God. Luke chapter 1. The angel Gabriel speaking to Mary. And Mary says, how am I going to bear a child when I am a virgin? That does not make sense. And the angel said, nothing is impossible with God. His power is so great, anything is possible with Him. For you, it's impossible. Humanly speaking, impossible. But with God, it's certainly possible. 2 Corinthians 4. Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he tells them, that our eyes are blinded, Satan has blinded our eyes, we don't see the truth of the gospel, but God can open our eyes to the truth of the gospel, and this is one of the things he concludes. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Why in God's providence and plans has he determined to save sinners through such a foolish message preached by such foolish people? Why would he do it that way? So that you see he has the power and not me. God wants you to know the truth about his power. Look what the Bible says in the book of Revelation. Hallelujah. For the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. He's the Almighty. In the original language, that's the word Panto Crator, the Almighty. In the Old Testament, this would be the, the title of God, El Shaddai. He's the Almighty. His power has no limit. He is omnipotent. What Peter says in this passage is, His divine power 
has granted you everything that you need for life and godliness. The same power of God that spoke into the void at creation when there was nothing and then there was everything. The same power of God that brought global destruction on the earth in the flood. The same power of God that rescued a people from slavery in Egypt. The same power of God that centuries earlier spoke into the life of a man named Abraham who was old and whose wife was old and they had a child. How did that happen? The power of God. It's the same power that brought Israel, Abram's descendants, the the Hebrew slaves that left Egypt, that brought them into the promised land. How is it that a bunch of slaves who had wandered in the desert for four decades would conquer a city like Jericho? It wasn't their power. God's power. It's the same power of God that many years later, centuries later, to bring discipline and judgment on His people, God sent his people into exile, and he did it by raising up nations and kings, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And the Bible describes God raising up these empires and using them like tools in his hand to bring discipline and judgment on first Israel and later Judah. It's the same power of God that raised up a king named Cyrus, a Persian king. And Cyrus paid for the people to go home. Back to the promised land. He paid for them to rebuild their temple. Why? It's because God raised him up for this purpose. It was God's power on display. It's the same power of God at work in the the proclamation of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4, how is it that blind sinners will have their eyes opened when the God of this world, Satan, has blinded them? It's only the power of God. The same power, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4, that spoke light into existence in the beginning can open our eyes to see the truth of the glory of the gospel of God in Jesus Christ. It's the same power of God that will be at work in the new creation. When heaven comes down to a new world and God's people live in a redeemed, restored, perfect place. All of these things happen because God is powerful. And Peter is saying the most amazing thing. We think about all those stories, all those miracles, and we say, wow, I wish I could see God's power on display there, 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 there. Well, Peter says, here's one place you can see God's power on display. God's divine power, His omnipotence has given you everything that you need for life now and for godliness now. The same power on display throughout the Scriptures, on display in the life of the Christian, giving you everything you need for life and godliness. So the question is, what has He given us? What has God given us that aids us or helps us in terms of life and godliness? I'm going to give you a very quick, broad answer and then a Slower, narrow answer. The broad answer comes from First and Second Peter as a whole. What has God given us for life and godliness? Number one, He's given us the Holy Spirit. Peter says this almost immediately in First Peter chapter 1. He says the Holy Spirit is given to us for the purpose of sanctification, growth in holiness, growth in godliness, growth in Christ-likeness. Later, 
Peter says, it's the Holy Spirit who gifts people to serve, to speak, or to do various things in a local church, to build up the body of Christ. It's the Spirit that gives those gifts. What has God given us for life and godliness? Second, the Scriptures, the Bible. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, that the Word of God endures forever. It's not like the grass that's here today and it dies tomorrow, fleeting, temporary, outdated, but it's eternal and unchanging and it's perfect. Why? Because of what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2, 19, 20, 21. He says, the Holy Spirit of God carried men along as they wrote these words. These are not just Peter's words. They're not just Jeremiah's words. They're not just Moses' words. They're God's words. And they endure forever. And they're true. And they will never not be true. And you need them for life and for godliness. Thirdly, God has given you the church. The church. We're not talking about a building. We're talking about the people of God. We're not talking about a, a place you go on Sunday morning for entertainment. But we're talking about a living people that God has called out. That's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. Later in chapter 5, Peter talks about the church and he speaks directly to pastors, to elders or shepherds. And he says to them, you are under shepherds, under the Lord Jesus, the good shepherd. And you are to serve in such a way that your people have what they need for life and for godliness. This is God's plan for the church. It's intended to help you in life and godliness. Fourthly, Marriage. Marriage. God's aim for marriage for husbands and wives is that each spouse helps the other grow in their relationship with the Lord. That's clear as Peter talks about marriage in 1 Peter chapter 3. Instructions to the wife, instructions to the husband, both of them for the purpose that there is spiritual growth in maturity. Lastly, this is the one we cluck our tongues at, suffering. Peter says that God grants it that we might suffer. Just like he says here, he has granted to you everything you need for life and godliness. God understands that one of the things you need to grow as a Christian is suffering. And so God is willing to grant that to his people. Just like the Lord Jesus experienced suffering, God will send suffering into the lives of his people. Not because he's angry with you, not because he's disappointed in you, not because he's trying to punish you but he's doing it to help you grow and be strengthened for life and for godliness. Now that's the broad answer. Let's talk about the narrow answer. Just in our two verses, 2 Peter 1, 3-4, what has God given us for life and godliness? Number one, he's given us a calling to salvation. A calling to salvation. I want you to understand what Peter means in verse 3 when he says that God has called us to his own glory and excellence. He has called us. How many of you are glad that the elections are over so the spam callers will stop calling your phone? Right? You don't want to talk to those people, do you? Just ignore, 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 block, block, block. How many of you have seen the progressive insurance commercials where the guy is trying to teach old people how not to act so old? You know the commercials I'm talking about? I like these commercials. They're starting to hit home just a little bit. Not fully, but a little bit. So that tells you something. 
But I like the one where he says to them, you don't need to make a phone call. You don't need to leave a 10-minute voicemail. Just send a text message. That's all you got to do, send the text message. Don't make the call. Why? Because some people call you and you say, nope, decline. Nope, I'm busy. Nope, I'll call you later. You understand that when God calls people to his glory and his excellence, it's not the kind of call that you just say, decline. It doesn't work that way. Now, there's certainly an external call of the, gospel, of the gospel. Me, as a preacher, I stand in front of you on a Sunday and I call you to repent and to believe, but you can ignore me easily. My words have no power. God has power. He has a lot of power. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And when God calls a sinner to salvation, it's like when God called out in the beginning and said, let there be light, and there was light. Of course there was. That's what God said needed to happen, and it happened. This is like when the Lord Jesus stood outside the tomb of Lazarus, and he looked towards that tomb, and he said, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus didn't say, decline. He came out. When God gives this call, this sovereign effectual call, People respond, and that's what Peter's talking about here. How is it that you, a sinner, came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? The ultimate answer is that God called you to Himself. Now, we tend to think about this a little bit differently. We tend to think about it like Philip. You can go back and look in the early chapters of the Gospel of John. John tells us that Jesus was walking around Judea, and the Gospel of John very clearly says Jesus found Philip, and he talks to Philip, and then Philip turns around, and Philip goes to his buddy Nathaniel, and do you know what Philip said to Nathaniel? We found the Messiah, and if you've paid attention, you know that Philip didn't find anybody. Jesus found Philip. It says it right there in the text. Philip's description of the whole thing is, I found Jesus. I listened to a song just yesterday. I was driving down the road thinking about this sermon. The guy was talking about how he found Jesus. Okay, I understand what you're saying. You found Jesus. I hope that you have found Jesus. But if you have found Jesus, you understand that the reason you found him is that he found you. And he called you to his glory and to his excellence. And when God issues that call to a sinner, there is no decline. There is no maybe later. There is response. Calling to salvation. Secondly, God has given us the knowledge of God. That comes from God. Knowing God comes from God. Verse 3. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. The Bible describes God as a speaking God. God speaks to us through creation. And look at the world that's been created. You can see that there is a God. Everyone can see this. Most of us, apart from God's grace, in fact, we'd say all of us apart from God's grace, push back on that and twist that in some way. But it's clear that God has spoken to us about His existence in creation. It's also clear that He's spoken to us in the Scriptures. He has revealed Himself to us in the Bible. Why? So that we can know Him. Let me tell you something that you will hear people say from time to time. 
If you believe that God has spoken through this book and you believe that God has told us truth about himself and you stand for that truth, from time to time people will say to you, I don't think you should put God in a box. I don't think you should put God in a box. What do they mean by that? They mean you're being narrow-minded. You're cutting off possibilities about who God is and what He's like. You're claiming to have something that's true about God that other people may disagree about. And many times when people say you shouldn't put God in a box, what they're saying is, do you think that you and your finite small abilities can take in all of who God is? And the answer to that question is no. I can't and you can't. Take in the full glory and majesty of Almighty God. But God is a speaking God. And He has spoken to us in the Scriptures. And if God speaks to us in the Bible and He says to us, this is who I am, then for us to make our stand on that does not mean we're putting God in a box. It simply means we're listening to what God has said about Himself. And people can criticize you for being narrow-minded or for whatever they want to criticize you about. It's not putting God in a box to listen to what God says about Himself. He has spoken to us so that we would know truth about Him. Can you know everything about God? Of course not. But you can know things that are true about God. And not only does God want you to know about Him, He actually wants you to know Him. And you understand the difference. You might know lots of things about famous athletes, famous movie stars, famous politicians, but there's a world of difference in knowing about a person and knowing a person. God calls people to himself so that they might know the truth about him and so that they might know him. Thirdly, God has given us great and precious promises. Great and precious promises. Verse 3 and 4. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He's granted to us His precious and very great promises. If you're a Christian, God has promised to do some amazing things in your life. He's promised that if you will repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. He's promised that if you will repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be adopted into His family as his child. He's promised that if you will repent and you will believe, you will be declared righteous, that is justified once for all time, never to be changed. You're promised that if you will repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be given an inheritance that will be kept for you in heaven by God for the last day. These are great promises. They are precious promises. And one of them is the promise that God, in His omnipotence, has not only called you to Himself that you might know Him, but that He has given you everything that you need now for life and for godliness. Number four, God has given us union with Christ. He has united His people to His Son Jesus. Verse four. There's a phrase here that you need to understand. By which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. 
That's an odd phrase, isn't it? Partakers of the divine nature. Some of you have friends who are part of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon church. There's a theological maxim that came from one of the early presidents of the Mormon church that says this, as man now is, God once was, and as God now is, man may become. This basic theology 101 for an LDS person. God used to be a human being. He progressed. You're a human being. Do the right things. You might progress to godhood. There's a, a branch of the broader Christian movement called orthodoxy. Eastern orthodoxy, Russian orthodoxy, Greek orthodoxy, all these Eastern orthodox churches. In the Eastern orthodox church, there's a doctrine known as theosis. In Greek, in English, it's often translated deification, and it's simply the idea that as you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ, you can essentially become godlike. They would say partakers of the divine nature. I would say to you that what our LDS friends and our Orthodox friends are teaching is a twisting of what Peter's describing here. We use the Bible to interpret the Bible, and we understand that Peter's not saying someday you can be a God. He's not saying that you can be promoted to Godhood if you check all the right boxes along the way. He's saying you can be united to the Son of God who was truly human and truly divine. You can be united to Him by faith. That's a miraculous thing. That God would look at you through His Son and that rather than seeing you a sinner, He would see His Son who is perfectly righteous. It's an amazing thing. It's hard to process in your mind. The Bible would describe it as a mystery. And the Bible says that because God wants you to understand this mystery, He built something into the world to help you understand it. Do you know what that thing is? It's marriage. Marriage. God's intention in creating marriage was that you and I would have a picture of what happens when a sinner is united to Jesus Christ by faith. In marriage, two are joined together in such a way that now they are one. They are united. And they are not to be separated. That was God's plan in the beginning, and Jesus affirmed it. A man, one man, and a woman, one woman, joined together, two becoming one in a mysterious way. And Paul says in the book of Ephesians that that's a picture of our union with Christ. You and Jesus, by faith, are united together so that when God sees you, He sees you through the perfect, finished obedience and the sacrificial death of His Son. God has done that for you if you're a Christian. He has united you to Jesus by faith. One last thing that God has done for His people. God has given us escape from the world and from the flesh. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. I don't think I have to tell you that there's corruption in the world. I think you can see that for yourself most days when you scroll through social media or you watch the news for five minutes. I just want you to note what Peter says 
The reason there's corruption in the world is because of our sinful desire. Is the problem out there? Yes. Is the problem out there because it begins in here? Yes. God has given His people rescue, escape from the corruption of the world. That's an amazing thing. But also from the corruption of our own sinful desires. That's an even more amazing thing. We don't fully realize that rescue yet, but God has provided it in the Lord Jesus Christ, and one day it will come to full fruition. Escape from the corruption of the world and escape from your own sinful desires. If you are a Christian this morning, you need to walk away recognizing the power of God has given you everything you need for life and for godliness, and you need to give thanks. You need to simply thank God. God, you have given me everything that needed to be given to me. From my very first coming to you when you called me to salvation, to the promises that sustain me, to the future deliverance from the corruption of the world in my own heart. And you need to give thanks. If you are not a follower of the Lord Jesus this morning, my encouragement to you, my call to you, is that you ask God to give you these things. Now, my call has no power. I can't change your heart. I can't change your mind. But God can do that. God has all power. He's omnipotent. And my prayer for you, if you've never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, is that the same God who called out galaxies in the beginning, the same power of God that called a dead man out of his tomb, would call into your heart... And call you to faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.